Before we start this week's show, I have some exciting news to announce. The SRB podcast has hit an important milestone. This week, it passed over 1 million downloads. It's an incredible achievement and one that I didn't imagine when I started the show in February 2015. This, of course, couldn't have been done without the thousands of listeners and hundreds of guests and patrons out there, my colleagues at the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, your interest, and your continued support. So, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you a million times over. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is Post-Colonial Socialisms in Africa, the third in the series Socialism, Past, Present, and Future, held at the University of Pittsburgh. In this series, my guests and I explore the experience of really existing socialism, grassroots socialist and communist movements, socialist-inspired economic development and state-building, and visions of a socialist future from a global perspective. Shortly after independence, Julius Nyerere, the first president of Tanzania, embarked on a socialist experiment, the Ujamaa, the Villagization Initiative of 1967 to 1975. Ujamaa, or familyhood in Swahili, both evoked established socialist themes and departed from the existing global repertoire of development policy by seeking to reorganize the Tanzanian countryside into communal villages to achieve national development. To get a sense of Tanzania's socialist experiment, I turned to Priya Lal to discuss how Ujamaa was envisioned and unfolded in Tanzania and how that experience spoke to the particularities of African socialisms, nation-building, and development in the 1960s and 1970s. Priya Lal is an associate professor of African history and modern world history at Boston College. Her research focuses on the politics of national development in decolonization era and post-colonial Africa. She's the author of African Socialism in Post-Colonial Tanzania, Between the Village and the World, published by Cambridge University Press. Here's Priya Lal. So to start, I just, I'd like to have you tell us a bit about yourself and, and how you got interested in African history and Tanzania and socialism in particular. 
so um, it's interesting because I think everyone, every time someone asks me a question like this, I offer a different narrative. So um, I can say today that um, I became interested in African history on accident. Um, I was an undergraduate at Columbia University and was interested in taking classes about different parts of the world. Um, and I took a class on African history in that spirit. And I was just so excited to be in the class because I was learning all kinds of material I'd never encountered before. So the class was like a revelation to me. And one of the things I realized was that, you know, most people know very, very little about Africa in the U.S. Um, because Africa is not really treated as part of world history. It's sort of left out. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, ad address my ignorance. And I just kept uh, kind of going with it. Um, and I think the part uh, about sort of how I got to Tanzania and socialism, um, you know, it emerged out of the interest in Africa, but I also had um, a kind of longstanding interest in and concern about global inequality, I'd say, um, that maybe, you know, came from different things. Um, but I grew up in Southern California in a kind of very wealthy, um, politically conservative area where people lived in gated communities and, you know, they never had to sort of encounter poverty. Um, but my family uh, came from India and I would go with my parents to see extended family. And on those visits, I would see a level of poverty that, you know, was unimaginable to most of the people I grew up with. Um, you know, hungry children in the streets, you know, just uh, kind of level of misery and inequality that um, I, I really found difficult to make sense of. And so I think I carried that, you know, sense of concern and discomfort into my adulthood. And um, so I was interested in learning about efforts to address inequality. Um, and I, I kept on finding with regard to Africa that um, people in the U.S. would think about development in Africa, something that Westerners did to Africa, rather than something that Africans or, you know, people in other parts of the global south could do for themselves. So I wanted to study an African-led development initiative. Um, and I really was, you know, kind of fascinated by the Tanzanian Socialist Project because it seemed like a very ambitious development project. And it seemed like something that people hadn't quite made sense of um, in a thorough and um, really kind of meaningful way. Um, so that was what brought me to that project. Before we get into the particulars of, of socialism in, in Tanzania, why don't you paint a general picture of the, the context of post-colonial Tanzania in the 1960s that you know laid the groundwork for this project? Sure. Um, so Tanzania in the 1960s was a place of great excitement um, and um, transformation and change. Uh, Tanzania had been a British colony for decades um, and achieved its independence in 1961. That was the mainland part of the country, um, which was the British colony of Tanganyika. Um, the neighboring island territory of Zanzibar became independent in 1963, and the two merged together to become the United Republic of Tanzania in 1964. So British colonialism, um, you know, had left Tanzania in a state of um, what many called underdevelopment. Um, it was a poor country. Um, it was an agricultural exporter. Um, and um, 
So independence was seen as this great opportunity to come out of these decades of British colonialism and, and sort of make a new future for Africans. But it was also um, a, a condition that brought with it a number of challenges. Um, how do you go from being a colony to a new country and sort of achieve development um, without having a reserve of money and resources to draw on? How do you deal with the legacies of British colonial exploitation, um, not having infrastructure, not having a diversified economy? Um, and then also, how do you deal with being a new country in a region um, that was undergoing all kinds of uh, conflict and turmoil. Tanzania is bordered by um, the Congo, which was sort of in a civil war in the early 1960s. Um, Mozambique to the south, which was in a violent liberation struggle at the same time. Rwanda and Burundi, you know, other neighboring territories were undergoing um, sort of uh, domestic conflict, civil war. So this was a volatile region, um, and uh, that was a kind of... Um, um that was another daunting uh kind of factor in 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 that context um so this is the background of what's going on in the early 1960s um and we see that um the leader of the newly independent country um Julius Nyerere um wanted to respond to the situation by developing a kind of robust national program for development and he chose to um, adopt a program of African socialism. So that's what we're going to be talking about today um, in more depth. But um, in doing this, he followed a number of leftist African leaders from other parts of the continent, um, like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, um, Ahmed Sekoutoury in Guinea. Um, and he um, chose to, uh, to pursue a socialist path as, as Tanzania's way forward out of this kind of difficult situation. How did how did Tanzania um, avoid the being sucked into the turmoil that's all around it at the period, and particularly you know the the ethnic strife and and the the process of decolonization in a you know more or less peaceful in a peaceful manner? How did it avoid that? So um, it's a question. Um, it's a complicated question, but um, Tanzania um, is a uh, uh, a country um, that is multi-ethnic and doesn't have strong ethnic divisions that coincide with regional divisions. Um, and um, it, it's also a country that doesn't have the kind of tremendous disparity in terms of resource distribution that, say, the Congo has. Um, so the Congo, um, the neighboring country that I referred to earlier, um, was, as I said, in the early 1960s in a, in a situation of civil war. Um, and this largely had to do with um, kind of uh, the large concentrations of natural resources in certain regions. Um, and um, it also had to do with outside interest involvement in um, sort of stoking secessionist movements. Um, but um, Tanzania did not have a long history of ethnic division, um, as in Rwanda and Burundi, where, you know, the Belgian colonial re regime actively uh, tried to, um, or, or, or ended up um, fostering um, tensions between um, the two different predominant ethnic groups there. Tanzania was much more multi-ethnic, and so those kinds of divisions didn't really apply, I suppose. Now, the socialist project um, is called Ujamaa, and one of the things you stress 
early on in your book is is the need to take this project seriously. And of course, the impression that one gets is that scholars haven't taken it seriously. They've kind of dismissed it. And you say it needs to be taken on its own terms. So how it was understood by the people who implemented and experienced it. So what what does it mean to take Ujima on its own terms? What is it and what does it mean to take it on its own terms? Um, so when people hear the word, the phrase African socialism, um, they often think one of a few things. Um, either that African socialism is just a crude copy of Soviet-style socialism, um, or that it's a kind of rhetorical um, uh, tactic that uh, African leaders use to implement authoritarian projects. In other words, you know, there's this belief that African socialism was not a sincere project. It was just a kind of um, a gesture um, that was used um, to consolidate power. Um, others think that, you know, African socialism was this kind of incoherent mess and um, it's not really worthy of serious consideration because um, it, it didn't really kind of add up to something distinctive. Um, and so I think that none of those approaches really capture what African socialism was, um, and um, particularly in the case of, of Tanzania. So um, Julius Nyerere talked about African socialism initially um, uh, in in this um, uh, it, using this word ujama. So ujama um, in Swahili means familyhood, and so for him, um, familyhood was important because. The traditional African extended family, as he represented it, was supposedly the basis of um, what would be the future socialist um, society of Tanzania. Um, and he saw in the, the social institution of the extended family um, a kind of a resource to draw on. He saw the extended family as a site where people would practice kind of individual responsibility and hard work, but they would be um, accountable to one another. Um, and that the values of sort of sharing and communalism would be kind of naturally ingrained for people. Um, and so for him, African socialism was to draw on this pre-colonial African institution and generalize it to the level of the nation. Um, and other uh, uh, proponents of African socialism also talked about socialism that was sort of inherent to Africa. So. For Nyerere and others, um, African socialism was not a mere copy of uh, Soviet-style socialism. In fact, uh, Nyerere actually said that um, uh, uh, Ujamaa is opposed to capitalism, but it's equally opposed to doctrinaire socialism. Um, and so this was a way of talking about socialism as something that was grounded in African realities and tailored to African conditions. Um, we know based on the work of historians and other researchers that the African extended family that Nyerere talked about was very idealized. It didn't necessarily accurately reflect how people lived in the pre-colonial era. Um, but nonetheless, um, African socialism um, in Nyerere's vision um, was to be a project that was not about class divisions and, and class-based revolution, um, but a project that uh, sought to return people to the countryside. So he associated the extended family with the space of the countryside. And so for Nyerere, um, the foundation of Ujamaa socialism was to be the communal Ujamaa village. Um, 
the village was to be a space where people would come together um, and live in harmony, give up their private property, farm collectively, um, and sort of um, bring uh, Tanzania into um, a state of uh, development out of their own hard work and kind of collective spirit. Um, so uh, Nyerere in um, 1967 announced that um, this kind of socialist attitude of mind that he had talked about initially would be consolidated into a political program. Um, and the kind of cornerstone of this program um, uh, was a policy of villagization. So basically, he said that people living in the countryside um, should move into these Ujamaa villages where they would be um, uh, living together, farming collectively, give up their private property, and sort of taking up the spirit of harmony and mutual responsibility um, that supposedly inherited in pre-colonial tradition. So this was initially a voluntary program, and it turned into a compulsory program in 1973, where people were um, forced to resettle into villages. Um, and by 1975, 1976, these villagization drives concluded, um, and the project kind of came to an end. Um, so many people wonder how we got from this uh, very idealistic um, vision of Ujamaa as something that was a kind of pre-colonial tradition and this discussion of the family and, and this sort of um, natural state of, of African harmony, how we got from that to an exercise of compulsory forced resettlement. Um, and what I argue is um, that, you know, we have to see Ujamaa um, as a vision that had internal tensions or contradictions. So on the one hand, Nyerere's um, uh, vision of Ujamaa villagization was radically decentralized. It was flexible. It was improvisational. It was about people really um, developing new subjectivities. Um, and it was a very grassroots level project. On the other hand, um, he conceived of Ujamaa uh, villagization as a means of bringing people into contact with a modern nation state. Um, and so it borrowed from tropes of uh, modernization discourse um, by uh, talking about villages as a means of bringing people into contact with the state. Um, it was a way of bringing people to live near roads um, where social services could be delivered to them, like education, um, health care, this kind of thing. Um, and um, so that uh, kind of dimension of the Ujamaa project um, was different. It was uh, kind of more top-down. It was more rigid. Um, it was more about standardizing the rural landscape of Tanzania. Um, it borrowed from other kind of generic models of development um, that were not African. Um, so the kind of map of the village um, in, in that project was not traditional at all. I, I want to ask, you know, it. it's interesting because in most of the socialisms of the 20th century, and here you could either, you know, the Soviet Union being the main one, but it's it's very heavily modernization, right? It's about industrialization. It's about pulling, you know, a peasant society into, uh, you know, whatever modern era. But the orientation of this, it, it sounds, it, and maybe this is one of the internal contradictions, that on the one hand, it's trying to reclaim a, somewhat a very idealistic past, but supplant that in a modern, rationally organized manner. So how was this temporally narrated in terms of the past? Was it trying to cre recreate the past in a modern configuration, or was it 
trying to propel Tanzanian society forward. This is what I'm, you know, in this kind of socialist futurist sense. It was both. I mean, I think that's the thing um, that makes this project so interesting is that it, at the same time, um, sought to recover an idealized past and transform society into this this modern new thing. Um, and so this tension or contradiction was never quite resolved. Um, I mean, the Tanzanian bo project borrowed ideologically from a whole range of outside sources. And that, that was part of why we see this kind of tension, you know. Um, it borrowed from colonial development projects that celebrated or, you know, emphasized the village settlement um, and kind of Western modernization style projects for the Soviet project. But it also took inspiration from Maoism um, and from, you know, the kind of village republicanism you saw in, in India with Gandhi. Um, and so there were these different influences, influences that converged um, in the Ujamaa project. And so... Um, you know, there there was this irresolvable tension throughout um, uh, the 1960s and 1970s in, in Tanzania, where people um, really saw Africa, um, uh, African socialism, as taking people back to an original state, and at the same time uh, transforming people into a new state. And what role did the Cold War play in in shaping the the directions in which Tanzania took? How did it position itself within this larger context, or not at all, maybe? Yes, yeah, so the Cold War was really critical to what was going on um, everywhere on the continent, really, at this time. I mean, um, you know, Tanzania became independent, you know, right, kind of at the peak of Cold War tensions, the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis, right, going on um, right at the same time that the Congo Crisis is going on next door um, in, in, in you know, a more regional level. So, um Cold War tensions um, were on the minds of African leaders throughout the continent. And um, so, you know, the idea was that Tanzania wanted to develop its own developmental path that didn't trap it in the bipolarities of Cold War paradigms, right? Because it didn't want to, um, you know, d declare allegiance to the capitalist West. At the same time, it didn't want to come under the power of the Soviet Union. It wanted to sort of set its own path uh, moving forward. And there were varied reasons for this. I mean, one was just to really sort of, um, you know, um, stay true to the spirit of independence. Um, but there were practical reasons for this as well. Um, you know, um, the Cold War brought with it violations of national sovereignty to countries across the third world. Um, and um, African leaders were very concerned about the possibility of covert foreign intervention in their domestic affairs. Um, they were concerned about relying too much on one foreign um, uh, patron because they were worried that foreign aid came with strings attached. Um, so there was this emphasis on kind of diversifying your foreign sources of aid, um, looking to unconventional sources for ideological inspiration. Um, Tanzania developed a very close relationship with China um, as a kind of third way out of this um, bipolar trap. But um, the Cold War also inspired a kind of security consciousness in Tanzania and in a number of other African so socialist countries where people became very worried about protecting national security um, precisely because um, the threat of foreign intervention seemed so um, significant. Uh, in, in the case of Tanzania, this 
Cold War um, concern also overlapped with the fact that um, decolonization was ongoing um, in Southern Africa and Tanzania was actively involved in decolonization efforts. So Tanzania was hosting liberation movements from Mozambique, Namibia, um, South Africa, um, Rhodesia, you know, from all of these different countries. And so there were militants from um, um, these, these countries training in camps in Tanzania and they were receiving instruction and weapons and aid from the Soviet Union, from China, from Algeria. Che Guevara passed through um, Dar es Salaam on his way to the Congo. I mean, so there's a lot of different stuff going on here. And there were a lot of reasons to be concerned about the possibility of mil military intervention. So d there, there was a kind of a militarization of national politics that developed in Tanzania and, and some other countries at this time for that reason. Given that, the you know, the the influence of forces outside the African continent. So how did the socialism in Tanzania fit within a kind of wider Pan-Africanism if it's aiding various and various liberation movements as it's also trying to develop internally? Yeah, so it's difficult, right? Because um, Tanzania um, was a country and Julius Nyerere was a leader who was very invested in the Pan-Africanist project. And Pan-Africanism means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, uh, initially, um, there were attempts and efforts to actually develop um, political federations um, out of different African countries. The idea being that, well, the, the colonial map of Africa is kind of arbitrarily divided up. So why should new countries preserve colonial borders? They're, they're just random, right? You know, um, and so, um, you know, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana famously called for the establishment of a United States of Africa. Um, Julius Nyerere had a slightly different vision that was more on a regional level. So he was a proponent of an East African federation that would have tied together Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda. Um, that project fell through. But nonetheless, um, you know, he continued to um, be active in, in solidarity efforts to help other African countries achieve independence. The idea being that the liberation of one African country is not enough. No one will truly be free on the continent unless everyone is free. Um, so those were, you know, all um, kind of, you know, wonderful commitments, but, you know, they they put um, new countries at risk, right? Um, and so there was a tension between a kind of commitment to this internationalism and um, a commitment to nation building. Um, and so that's a tension that I, I see throughout um, the time period we're looking at here. Um, people, um, you know, average people in Tanzania, you know, really felt a kind of I truly did feel, I think many people felt the strong Pan-Africanist sentiment at the same time that, um, you know, people were um, obviously concerned about building their own country. And there was this worry about foreign intervention um, uh, that, that kind of kind of was a cost of, of this investment. It, again, just the orientation of, of Ujamaa, was it specifically... <laughs> A socialism in one country, <laughs> or or was it conceptualized in in the Pan Africanist way that it could be, you know, maybe implemented in other spaces on the continent? I think in its most utopian version, um, Ujamaa really sought to establish a model that could be replicated and extended elsewhere. It was a as I as I mentioned, it was meant to be a kind of ethical orientation. Um, it was not necessarily um, a project that was restricted to one country. It was a way of transforming people's mentalities, um, and, and that was very much connected to 
to transforming people's mentalities to to recover this this sense of pan African connection. Um, but you know, practically speaking, because um, you know, pan Africanism as a political project um, sort of lost its possibility in the in the nineteen sixties. Um, you know, Ujamaa came to be very much a, a Tanzanian project and and um, the kind of idea of exporting it was not realistically on the table. Um, Nyerere was somebody who was was, was looked, up, looked up to across the continent um, and, you know, across the diaspora. But, um, you know, there were no practical plans to really carry out this project or, or, or sort of advertise it um, elsewhere. Um, it did inspire, you know, other socialist thinkers elsewhere, but um, it wasn't actually intended, practically speaking, to be exported. If it was, if it had this strong ethical component and the changing of people's mentalities, did it also have a discourse of a new person like you find in other socialist contexts, socialist states? Um, that kind of discourse of the new man or the new woman, um, it, um, it didn't, really exist in the Tanzanian context because this emphasis on returning to tradition was so strong. Um, and I know in, say, Mozambique, that was very much a part of the socialist project um, that had a different orientation. In a place like Ghana, where there was more of an emphasis on industrialization and urbanization, there was more of a sense of creating new um, Ghanaians. Um, but in the Tanzanian case, it's very much a sense of restoring tradition and this goes along with the emphasis on the countryside the agrarian space and, and talk a bit more about this idea this ujama as nation building because it is in i mean most socialist projects in the 20th century were also about nation building not just in terms of modernization but creating a polity of a nation um, you know, a certain citizenship. And then, of course, with Tanzania and other decolonized countries, they have the extra effort to actually create a nation when there really wasn't one, a sovereign nation for. So how did how did this, and, and I'm, again, with this idea of nation building, I'm struck again by the this effort to recapture the past, right? Which to me also sounds about, it sounds like trying to build a, a sense of nationhood. So how did, how did it work in the implementation and the conceptualization of Ujamaa for the Tanzanian nation? So um, the way Nyerere talked about it um, was that, uh, you know, the traditional African extended family would be the fundamental social, social, social unit. And then that would be extended to the village. And then the village would you know, um, become part of the community of the region, and then that would make up the community of the nation. Um, and so th this was very much a project about, uh, a, a project of cultivating kind of a national subjectivity, a sense of national be belonging and commitment. Um, Nyerere also did talk about kind of a transnational community of, of, of socialism, and that was the sort of utopian pan-African project. Um, but in terms of nation building, um, you know, kind of that was the the idea, but practically speaking, um, you know, uh, as I mentioned, villagization was partly intended as a way of bringing communities together, um, and that kind of narrative actually um, drew, I think, more on um, colonial discourse, which really, um, you know, came with its problems, obviously. Um, but it suggested, you know, that people um, kind of um, were living in these scattered communities and didn't have contact with modernity, which is actually not the case. Um, and um, so, you know, 
I think it's kind of a hard question to answer because um, nation. I, I think it's a hard question to answer because nation building meant so many different things to right, different people. Right. Yeah. But did 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 a sense of being Tanzanian as opposed yeah. to being a member of your particular ethnic yeah. group was yeah. that established out of this or was that a different process? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I, I don't the, I can't say that such a thing ever emerged for everybody, right? Um, so, for instance, um, when I went to do research for my project, um, uh, this was now a long time ago, uh, fifteen years ago, something like that. Um, I was interviewing um, elder, elder, elderly villagers in the southeastern part of the country, um, and um, people didn't necessarily, um, you know, in in those older uh, communities, didn't necessarily really think of their Tanzanianness as a central part of their identity. Um, so um, some people did, some people didn't. Um, there were varying levels of investment in that idea. Um, I think one of the things that Nyerere really emphasized was the uh, speaking of Swahili as a national language. And for him, that was very important because it was a language that was not tied to a particular kind of ethnic group. Swahili is a language that emerged out of centuries of Indian Ocean trade. And so it would be a kind of supra-tribal language. Um, and um, so I think for him, that was a really important part of building a nationalist subjectivity. But people didn't necessarily, I, I think, a kind of sense of belonging to, to the Tanzanian nation didn't necessarily emerge out of villagization. Some people really um, interpreted that um, uh, much more locally. Um, some people didn't. So there's a, there's a lot of variation. Now we've spoken so far about how it's conceptualized kind of above. How was it experienced and implemented on the ground? And particularly one of the things you, you focus on is the varying gender dynamics of this. The, you know, there's a, there's a kind of militarist masculinity and then there is a positionality for, you know, there's an effort to at some sort of gender equality, but it reinforced, seems to reinforce female gender roles nonetheless. So how did it work on the ground? Um, so it's a big project, right, to reorganize the whole countryside into this new uh, landscape of standardized villages. Um, and so the project really unfolded in two stages, as I suggested. Initially, there were these voluntary drives for a period of about six years. And these were implemented very unevenly. So certain parts of the country um, really, you know, took this on uh, and other parts of the country didn't change very much at all when it was a voluntary project. Um, uh, I did my own research in the southeastern part of the country in a region called Ntwara, which was one of the more active adopters of the Ujamaa project early on. Um, and so what happened there, um, as in other places where villagization was um, um, you know, taken on meaningfully early on, was that there were these groups of um, sort of government officials who were accompanied by um, these kind of uh, paramilitary organizations. So one of these was the Youth League of the ruling political party um, called TANU. Um, and another um, one of these organizations was the People's Militia. It was a sort of national paramilitary organization. Um, and so these were usually um, kind of young men from villages in the area. Um, and they would go around um, in 
in their area and encourage people to move now. So encourage <laughs> is a word that can be used by different people in different ways, right? Um, and so I was very curious about what that actually meant. Um, and it turns out, I think a lot of people interpreted it differently. Um, some people um, uh, actually, uh, and I'm talking now about villagers who were moved by these young men, uh, some people um, sort of disregarded <laughs> these instructions. Uh, others actually were worried that they were going to be arrested if they didn't move. Other people remember being kind of threatened um, by the destruction of their property if they didn't move. So um, for different reasons, <laughs> um, people um, in, in the area tended to move to these kind of small settlements. Um, in the second wave of villagization, it became a national directive for people to move. Now, is it, is this, is this people who, like who is being from, to move from one place, mm -hmm. from what place to another place? Is it urbanites who are being moved to the countryside or is it a consolidation of into concentrated villages? So it, it, it varies again, okay. because there are certain parts of the country. I mean, Tanzania was, was predominantly rural at the right. time and it still is, but um, obviously, there were cities and there was urbanization occurring um, during that time. Um, but we're mostly talking about rural areas being changed um, into areas um, with these villages. But some parts of the country already had um, very well-developed, densely settled villages, large kind of rural settlements. Um, and other areas had very scattered settlements. So in the area where I'm you know, referencing... Um, in the southeast, um, people um, there were some large, older villages um, in the countryside, but people tended to live in more scattered settlements, um, collections of like five to ten um, households in an extended family group. Um, and so, um, initially, this became a kind of consolidation of these scattered settlements. The idea, again, being that eventually these would be big enough villages where you could establish a school and a health center and this kind of thing. And it would be by a road, and so people could be transported to the city easily. Is it also to concentrate labor as well for agricultural production? Or? Um, it's not actually. I mean, you know, there is a sense of the, you know, that the people should um, uh, sort of d develop a kind of communal village farm. But um, this was a very ambitious idea and it wasn't enforced. Um, so um, the kind of compromise was that in many areas, um, officials encouraged people to work in a village plot um, where they would kind of have contiguously farmed private plots within a, a like a, a, a large village um, a piece of farmland, but then they would also keep their own private farms. Um, and eventually they kind of just sort of gave up on that. Um, but, you know, the idea was that, yes, there would be a kind of village farm, but it wouldn't truly be, um, you know, that was kind of accepted that it wouldn't truly be a kind of a, a true collective project. Um, so it's not like in, in the case of the Soviet Union. Right, it's not you collectivization. Know, it's, it's absolutely not that. There's no sense of people are um, sort of forced to meet quotas and this is about kind of production for the nation. I mean, these are much more sort of um, uh, decentralized um, uh, 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 kind of, this is a much more decentralized understanding of what's going on in the village. So yeah, people are, are moving into these concentrated settlements um, from scattered settlements. There are other cases in which there are older settlements that are just being kind of reconfigured. Um, and then in the second wave of villagization, as I said, um, people across the country were forced to move. This also was implemented unevenly. Um, so different regions had different experiences with this. Um, in the region where I work, um, you know, compulsory villagization was a very real thing. People were forced. People do remember um, homes being burnt down. 
Um, people remember militants coming to their home um, kind of one morning and putting all their stuff into a truck and saying, if you don't move, like we're going to just burn everything down. So people would move because they were frightened and then they had to go to a new village and, and build. What overnight. are the numbers like for, for this? Um, I don't have numbers. And okay. this, is a, this is actually important because a lot of people um, throw around numbers um, with... Uh, with regard to villagization in Tanzania. And I don't think those numbers are accurate. Um, I think they're based on attempts to uh, quantify, you know, the scale of what was happening. But I don't think people really have a good sense of what the scale of this actually was. I mean, and I've read many state um, archives, uh, I mean, state uh, records of what was happening in which, you know, officials who were recording the numbers of people and numbers of villages admit in the files that these are kind of made up numbers to some extent, you know what I mean? Because we don't actually really know the scale of what was happening. And I think that's important because there's this misconception that a lot of people have that a project like this is about enabling a kind of state surveillance of the population so that people can be scrutinized and their every move can be measured and recorded and that's just absolutely not what was happening here it was not the intention but the tanzanian state did not have that capacity so i i would not um uh, throw around any numbers because i don't actually um want to contribute to that um kind of cycle of misinformation um so in the, so in this sense it's not about the intent isn't to create this modern bureaucratic surveillance state kind of population politics but at the same time, you do have this villagization along certain rational principles of, you know, grid plotting of, of villages, uh, social services. You you do get a, you know, an attempt to uh, modernize nonetheless, but not from the state level. Yeah, I mean, I think um, um, it, it is top down. Yeah. Um, it is top down in certain respects. But um, it's not necessarily about establishing some kind of absolute control sure. over the population, right? Um, it's top down in the sense that it's a it's a it's a state um, directive telling people that they have to move, and this policy is enforced by people who are associated with the state. But uh, many of the young men, the militants I was talking about earlier on, um, they, you know, they weren't actually being very well controlled by anybody from the central government. I mean, they were, to some extent, doing what they wanted to do. Um, but yeah, there, there was never this sense of kind of um, that, you know, people in villages are going to be monitored for their political activity and that, um, you know, this is a way for the state to um, ensure that people are kind of keeping in line and, and being good political subjects. But was it even like about, I mean, putting that aside, yeah. I'm also thinking of in just in terms of the state having knowledge of its population, like you see in other modern nation states. Yeah. I mean, um, it's kind of creating leg legible citizens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it, it, it was not a central part of the project, I think. Um, you know, it, it was that kind of thinking is embedded in the sort of modernization logic that I was talking about. But again, the Tanzanian state just did not have the capacity for that. And that's a really kind of important point um, that, you know, to remember that this is a state in the making, right? I mean, this is this is all very new. Um, and um, the state itself was not this kind of 
you know, well-established monolithic entity that had these powers. I mean, um, a lot of what's happening is a bit improvisational and kind of, you know, happening on the fly. So, um, was it, I'm sorry, I keep on pushing this because I find, I find this really fascinating because, you know, the kind of modernization logic of the modern state is to know its population. Mm -hmm. So is it, is there, what about the issue of governance? Mm -hmm. You know, it is trying to, con it's trying to connect and plug people into, you know, not only local, but regional and international economies. Uh, it's trying to provide certain services. It, what about the extension of, you know, state governance over these spaces? Is that part of the project as well? I, I, I guess the thing is, I'm trying to understand. Uh, the, on the one hand, you have this top-down process. Mm -hmm. You're you're pushing people into these concentrated villages. You're reordering the village spatially to make it along certain rational principles. Your, you have this kind of utopian ideology of collectivism. So I'm wondering, what is the state getting from all this? It seems to be decoupled from the process on the ground. Yeah. So um, what is the state getting out of this? I mean, I think, <laughs> yeah. So so it's, it's um, gosh, I think it's important to remember that there were people who really truly believed in this project as a kind of radically decentralized kind of utopian grassroots project who really truly believed as you know you know uh, unlikely it may sound to some of us that they really truly believed that you know this project of creating socialist harmony in the countryside creating self-reliant villages would actually lead to better production more self-sufficient um you know, uh, communities in the countryside, and this would actually help Tanzania achieve development. At the same time, there were people who very much believed that, you know, in order to become a modern state, you had to kind of get people out of their rural homes and into modern villages where they would do modern things, right? You know, um, go to school and this kind of thing. Um, but in terms of like a kind of ulterior motive of people in power to be able to um, sort of control people or, um, uh, you, you know, consolidate their power. I, I just, I, I don't see that as a major motivation here. Um, and and it's, it's partly because this is all happening very quickly. Um, there's a sense of urgency that if Tanzania is going to undertake a project like this, it has to happen fast because the stakes are very high. And look, you know, Africa doesn't have a lot of time. It has to catch up, right? And, and there are a lot of people out there that don't want Africans to, to succeed in their, their efforts, right? Um, but I don't think that there's this kind of um, emphasis on um, on governance in the sense that you see in, say, the Soviet Union or even right. in, in China, right? Um, so um, I don't know. I, I I know that you're you're curious about it. I don't know if I'm like quite no. Getting I'm not. It, I'm not. It. I'm actually less yeah. interested yeah. in like whether this is cynical or yeah. whether this. I'm more interested in this this idea that in the 20th century, you have a lot of state building going on yeah. and not just in the Soviet Union and socialist and communist states, you have it in the West as well, mm -hmm. right? With the welfare state mm -hmm. and things like this. Mm -hmm. So when I ask, you know, what is the state getting out of it? It's not really about what individual leader is trying to consolidate mm -hmm. power, but how is this, the state is pouring all of these resources. And so how is it ex connecting itself to the very project it's creating? Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that 
it wanted to have a decentralized from what you're saying. Yeah, it, it's both, right? Yeah. So it, it, it wanted to have these kind of, you know, there's this, this impulse towards having these decentralized villages that are kind of somewhat autonomous. And there's this discourse of self-reliance that villages yeah. should be self-reliant. At the same time, it was about consolidating welfare states, so, you know, welfare state and being able to distribute social services and this kind of thing. Um, so uh, it, there's an irresolvable irresol yeah. tension there. Yeah. Right. Um, now you interviewed people about their experience. So what did what did this mean to people in the villages? How did they understand what Ujamaa was and socialism and you know cooperatives or or collective you know village farms and stuff like this? So people had a you know have a wide variety of ways of making sense of what happened to them during villagization. Um, some people um, experienced villagization as a kind of catastrophic dis disruption. Um, and these were people who tended to wait until villagization was compulsory and they were moved by force. Like so, some of the folks I'm talking about who woke up in the morning and their things, their belongings were thrown into a truck and they were, they were just forced to move overnight. Um, uh, and these tended to be people who um, for instance, may have had a permanent farm where they farm cashew trees and they didn't want to leave that farm. So if they moved away from their farm, they would have to walk a long distance every day to maintain it. And they didn't want to do that, right? Because it was it's hugely inconvenient for them. Um, um, others remembered villagization as a kind of opportunity. And these included, for instance, some of the young men that I was referencing who actually worked with these um, sort of paramilitary groups to resettle people. These would be some of the often the first movers to to villages when the project was voluntary. And for them, villagization was an opportunity because it was a chance to gain more social status. Um, but it was also um, a kind of you know opportunity to live in a settlement where, as I as I mentioned, you could potentially have access to a school, um, to a hospital or a health center. Um, but but there were also opportunities in villages that were not, you know, things that were connected to the the state. Um, for instance, if you lived in a village, if you were living in a predominantly Muslim area like where I worked, um, there could be a mosque where you could go pray on Fridays and you wouldn't have to trek through the countryside to get there. Um, you know, in the area that I'm talking about, there were wild animals in the countryside that people were afraid of. There were lions, actually. So <laughs> young, uh, women sometimes talk about, you know, that they're grateful to move into villages because when their children went to school, they weren't worried that they would be attacked by a lion on the way to school. I mean, that sounds, um, you know, extreme, but it's a very real thing that people had to contend with. Others, you know, um, saw villagization as something that was kind of a neutral thing or a mixed thing. It was an opportunity and a kind of, you know, a hardship for them. Um, but people had varying understandings of what Ujamaa actually meant. Um, many folks were really taken by Julius Nyerere, who, I mean, if you read his writings, and I encourage you to do so, he, he writes in this kind of you know, very persuasive, um, clear, um, and compelling language about um, kind of uh, the ethos of, of of socialism and and of kind of mutual responsibility and and folks really um, responded to that. You know, Nyerere was was somebody who people really idealized um, and looked up to. Um, he was somebody who represented the opposite of, you know, um, the kind of evils of British colonialism. Um, but others, you know, didn't have that 
well developed of a nationalist consciousness, right? So they had a much more limited understanding of Ujamaa. Um, and, you know, these would be folks who perhaps had no education, no formal education. Um, you know, these are people, you know, in, in these rural areas who work hard. I mean, they're out in the fields every day and they, they've got, you know, lives that aren't necessarily easy. And so some people don't have don't have time for that. Um, you know, it's not it's not on the top of their list of priorities. And so um, people, you know, uh, some folks are very invested in the Ujamaa project. Some folks are kind of indifferent to it. And then, of course, some people are critical of it. Um, you know, so I heard when I was doing interviews with with older villagers, you know, people talk about Nyerere and say that, you know, when when they hear his speeches today on the radio, they cry, you know, because they're so moved by them and they're, they're, there's a sense of nostalgia. Others talked about the villagization project as a kind of a neo-colonial project, you know, where it was like sort of re reproducing all the, the evils of, of, of violence, of colonialism. So there's a whole range of ways in which people interpreted the project. And I think that speaks to the kind of complexity of the Ujamaa project itself, right? That, that it lent itself to having these different interpretations because it was a vision that was kind of had these many dimensions and, and elements to it. Is there a collective memory of it today? Like as on a national level? There is. Um, I mean, it's contested as these things always are. Um, there um, is, you know, as I mentioned, a kind of sense of nostalgia that people have um, for the early post-colonial period. Um, Nyerere in particular is kind of revered by, by many. Um, but there's also a kind of a political capitalization on that um, sentiment where um, the ruling political party at the time of Nyerere was TANU, as I mentioned, the Tanganyika African National Union. And Tanzania was a one-party state throughout the socialist era and became um, a multi-party, or in theory, a, a place where multi-party politics were allowed um, in the early 1990s. But every national election that has been held since um, um, uh, political pluralism pluralism was established has been dominated by the su successor of TANU, which was renamed as the CCM, the party of the revolution in Swahili. CCM has won every time, right? And so CCM is still in power um, today, but um, in the last election that they contested, it was kind of, it was, it was a close call because opposition parties are really gaining a momentum. So the kind of current leader of, of, uh, of the party and of the country, he's really kind of styling himself as somebody who goes back to the Nyerere kind of period, returning to the values of this earlier period, although many people are quite critical of him and saying, wait, this guy is not really about that. Um, and in fact, he's kind of um, taken the country in what many would argue is a very different direction. Um, so people people still try to, you know, um, kind of capitalize on this nostalgia for the Ujamaa period um, I think it's important to remember that Tanzania, after the socialist era, um, went through a period of extreme difficulty uh, in economic terms and political terms. It was um, one of the countries that was targeted by structural adjustment reforms imposed by the World Bank and IMF in the 1980s and 90s, where um, state capacity was really cut and investment in social services was cut and people really suffered um, uh, during that period. So, you know, compared to what came before, which was colonialism and what came after, which was this neoliberal era, 
the Ujamaa period, you know, with all of the hardships of the villagization period, it was it was a time of possibility and hope for many people. And and so there's a kind of nostalgia for that today. Let's let's have you address the gender question more specifically. How did how did the gender dynamics get affected by the socialist project? So I always think it's interesting when one is thinking about socialist projects in general to think about what happens to gender norms because um, you know, socialism in one sense is about achieving this kind of radical human, uh, radical human equality. Um, and um, yet gender norms tend to be very entrenched and durable. And indeed, in, t- in the Tanzanian case, on the one hand, there's this sort of utopian spirit about of, of achieving radical equality. On the other hand, the way in which it goes about um, being practiced tends to like differentiate and entrench divisions between different groups. So the militarization of national political culture I was talking about um, tended to kind of assign um, the work of policing the, the nation um, and sort of implementing national policies to men, particularly young men. And women were, you know, not necessarily explicitly, but implicitly assigned the task of being kind of domestic guardians. Um, guardians of social security. So there were all of these initiatives um, that the Tanzanian state preserved from the colonial era to um, have state workers go into rural areas where they would train women in home economics, kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of teach them how to raise their children and cook food and clean their house as if People didn't know that already, but <laughs> there's a sense that you have to do that because women, if they're going to help build a nation, they need to first, you know, be um, good members of good mothers and wives, right? Um, so that's that's a kind of very clear departure from this utopian vision. Um, but in terms of kind of marriage law um, and this kind of thing, I mean, um, it's, it's issues about sexuality. One of the things that happens in the 1960s is that in urban centers, which I haven't talked very much about yet there's a kind of um, a cultural policing that starts to go on. Um, and this is going on in many different parts of the African continent, not even only in socialist contexts. Um, but, you know, this is at the time of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. It's a time globally when cultural politics are very charged in one way or another. And in the case of Tanzania, what happens is these paramilitary groups led by young men go around um, in cities telling um, young women, you know, that you can't wear mini skirts um, and um, you can't wear tight pants because those are kind of Western um, bourgeois um, clothes and practices. And in order to adhere to the spirit of authentic African socialism, you need to dress more modestly, wear traditional African clothing, this kind of thing. So um, this is one way in which like the, the sort of socialist project turns into a project of imposing a kind of very specific vision of um, of, of, of what good womanhood is. Um, but kind of more generally, you know, what, what's interesting to me about this concept of familyhood is that, as I've been saying, it, it celebrates this notion of the traditional African extended family. But the way villagization is actually organized is that um, people are supposed to live in individual houses divided by nuclear family. Right. So there's this notion that in order to actually implement this project, people have to be living in these discrete nuclear family family units. So it ends up kind of um, reinforcing a a concept of family um, and domestic partnership and this kind of thing that's actually, you know, in many ways, not very (laughs) 
African, um, you know, like it, it's sort of not how people necessarily lived before. It's certainly not how folks in the area where I lived, you know, it's not it's not something that was familiar to them. I mean, in in the I'm sorry, not the area where I lived, the area where I worked. Um, in that area, what I actually found is that people would like get married and divorce all the time. <laughs> they didn't stay in these kind of nuclear rigid units. Um, they they kind of were used to moving in and out of households and in and out of domestic partnerships. And this was not something that the state actually recognized, even though it was quite common. Um, there's a lot of different reasons for that, um, which I won't go into. Um, but yeah, so there are these um, sort of gender divisions that get entrenched through the implementation of this project, even though on on the one hand, you know, Ujamaa is really, it, it's about abolishing, abolishing those distinctions and ends up reinforcing them. Yeah. So how so how did how how did it end? Did the- oh, it um it all sort of fizzled out. Um, the villagization drives um concluded in kind of nineteen seventy five nineteen seventy six, um and at that point the Tanzanian regime said, well, we are done with villagization. We haven't achieved substantive meaningful socialism in the countryside, but at least we have people living in this contigu- these contiguous settlements. Um, nonetheless, the kind of the rhetoric of Ujamaa and this sort of this the, some of the economic policies that the government had implemented continued to stay in place um, into the 1980s. Um, in then in 1986, Tanzania submitted to its first structural adjustment reform, and that meant that basically the the, the regime lost control over its own policy um, because uh, these external um, institutions, the World Bank and IMF, started to say that in order to um, accept aid from us, we need to sort of implement all these reforms, um, austerity measures, devaluing currency, li- liberalizing trade policy, this kind of thing. Um, and so that was the beginning of the end, you know, of uh, kind of the remainder of, of the socialist project. And by the early 1990s, um, there was a kind of official move away from, you know, Ujamaa. And as I mentioned, this was the start of multi-party politics. Um, so there was a period of transition, you know, um, at the starting at the, from the end of the villagization project through the 1980s. Um, and by the end of that, I don't, I don't think anybody, you know, would really consider socialism alive and well. Um, although people still reference Ujamaa today, um, it's it's not in the same spirit. We tend to talk about socialism in terms of failure. This is the main narrative, right? Um, and we see it to the present day. How does how does one in Tanzania or even yourself evaluate the project itself in terms of its successes and or failures? What what is the you know how is it talked about? I guess in in, in you know is it talked about similar to how a lot of you know quote unquote failed socialist projects are talked about as a mistake, as a, you know, a failure? So I think a lot of outsiders, their starting point is that, yes, Ujamaa was a failure. It was a disastrous failure. Um, And I mean, certainly Ujamaa did not achieve a situation in which people in Tanzanian countryside were all living in functional socialist villages and gave up their private property and this kind of thing. It did fail in that sense. However, in many other senses, Ujamaa, um, you know, is seen by folks in Tanzania to be something that worked quite well or, you know, had many achievements, right? Um, so in the colonial era, right, people were denied education. They didn't have good access to health care, as I mentioned. 
Um, you know, the, the economy was completely stunted. Um, folks had to pay a, a tax to the colonial regime that they didn't, you know, benefit from in most cases. Um, and during the first years of, of Tanzanian independence, during the Nyerere era of the 1960s and 1970s, literacy rates did go up. Um, life expectancy did go up. People had access to schools um, um, for the first time in many cases. People had access to health care. Um, people had access to roads, infrastructure in new ways. Um, so people's quality of life actually in many cases was improved. Um, and those are achievements that, you know, um, are, are very much appreciated today. Um, people today in many parts of Tanzania still do live in villages that were established during this um, resettlement drive. Um, some people did leave those villages. Others, you know, in other areas, they weren't well established to begin with. But in many parts of the country, people say, hey, I'm, I'm happy to be living in a village because, you know, I've got amenities here that I would have never had, um, you know, in my previous um, home. Um, and I benefit from, you know, independence in concrete ways. Um, you know, a lot of these things changed, as I mentioned, during the structural adjustment period and during the economic crises of the 1980s and this kind of thing. But those problems are not necessarily, um, you know, inherent in the Ujamaa project. They're not necessarily logical extensions from this of this policy. I mean, there are many factors that account for for um, Africa's, you know, um, kind of economic situation and Tanzania's economic situation. For instance, one thing, you know, that we have to keep in mind is that villagization um, in 1973, 1974, 75 happened to coincide with a global economic like recession, right? And so the oil shocks of 1973 had a negative impact on African countries. And that's not something that <laughs> was Ujamaa's fault, right? right. Um, it also, these were the years of a, of a major drought throughout um, the country. And so that um, happened to coincide with this project and it had a negative effect on agricultural production and this kind of thing. And so um, there are many factors we have to consider when thinking about whether a particular political project failed or succeeded. Um, you know, uh, Tanzania was was kind of born with handicaps that that came from colonialism and the way that the world economy is organized. Um, they're not necessarily um, flaws of the Ujamaa experiment. And, and finally, you know, taking Ujamaa seriously on its own terms, what do you take from it to think about, you know, socialism as a project in the 20th century? Like, what does this this example help us understand the the, the larger project going on? So um, many people still today, when they think about socialism, you know, they think in kind of very crude categories, like we have the Soviet style model. Um, and then, you know, there's Maoism, which is this kind of spinoff. Um, and then there's this kind of sense that there's some satellite projects. You know, the Cuban project is kind of, it's a little different than the Soviet project, but it's sort of derivative of it. Um, but that really leaves out the fact that there's this whole field of political experimentation across the third world where people took the idea of Marxism, took the, you know, the 
the tenets of, of socialism and they kind of adapted them and turned them into something new. So um, there are African socialist projects in a number of countries that I mentioned already, Ghana, Guinea, Mali, Tanzania, Congo Republic, Mozambique. Um, and these were just, you know, a few of the many cases across the world, Vietnam, Korea, you know, uh, you know, other countries in Latin America took on socialist projects. So I think remembering that there's this kind of broader field of political projects that were inspired by and informed by socialism is important, um, you know, uh, because that changes the narrative of the Cold War and of, of this this kind of mid 20th century period. Um, and I think today it's a good reminder as, you know, people are socialism is becoming a political buzzword again. It's in the news. I mean, the, the current front runner for the Democratic Party is claiming to be a socialist. People are looking to um, perhaps <laughs> think about this concept anew. And it's a good reminder um, when we think about these experiments like the Tanzanian one to to remember that there are different kind of creative, um, unconventional political projects that can be inspired by socialist thought, right? And so when you return to socialism, it doesn't mean that you're returning to Soviet-style com communism necessarily. There's a whole range of different political po possibilities that we can think about here. Um, and I think that the kind of other thing that we see maybe from the Tanzanian case that helps us think about socialism differently is that, um, as I mentioned, this is a project that is multidimensional in how it's imagined and also in how it's actually experienced. And so, um, you know, it, it helps get us out of these these narratives and tropes of, you know, uh, socialism is this thing that's imposed in a heavy-handed way by a state in a top-down manner and is about kind of control and these sinister um, motivations. And we see actually that socialism in this case was about kind of experimenting with different ways of organizing community, um, and could have different meanings to different people, and it could could represent, um, you know, opportunities as well as hardships, and and could could sort of lead people to understand themselves in different ways. So, um, just remembering that there's this kind of diversity of possibilities um, and experiences um, associated with with socialist projects, I think, is really important. That was Priya Lal, an associate professor of African history and modern world history at Boston College. Her research focuses on the politics of national development in decolonization era and post-colonial Africa. She's the author of African Socialism in Post-Colonial Tanzania, Between the Village and the World, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and once again, thanks to all you listeners for downloading the show over a million times. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Arizona, Fox, California, Grand. 